All right. Well, here we go. Let's dive in. Uh, let's turn our attention to our Lent series that we started a week and a half ago right here in this room when we had our Ash Wednesday service. And I want to start with, with this um, today. I want to start with this. When we were getting ready for our Ash Wednesday service, one of our college students um, who was helping to lead us in singing, she was wearing her hat. She'd come here from, from school and it was a cold day. And before we started the service, she said, should I take off my hat? And those of you who have been around churches for a long time know that that is a loaded question. And maybe you've been a part of churches where the hat wars are just going at it. And you've seen the battle lines that have been drawn over our hats. The right thing to do. Is it about what's inside or is it about these passages? And so as she was talking, I said, well, what a, you know, let's look at what the word says. And I remember there's a passage in Corinthians um, that spoke to that. So here's, what, here's as the, the one passage that I know of that speaks directly to hats. Um, here, here we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.5 says this, uh, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So my point in bringing this up is not to say all of you married women, you need to bring your prayer bonnets with you wherever you go. Uh, my point is that what happens often in, in any religion is that very frequently along the way people begin to add things um, to their faith and their practices that aren't necessarily um, things that their, their, their religion itself says a lot about. And we tend to often um, get very passionate about things that if we're honest, they really are about tradition or trends rather than truth. And it's very easy to go down that path. Well, I want to begin then today um, by, by hopefully connecting some dots here between what I just opened with and where we're going to be going here. And, and here's maybe one more dot that's going to take us further down that path. There's a place to write this in your notes. To be religious is to be faithfully devoted. Often the word religious gets thrown under the bus, and I think that's unfortunate because it is a beautiful word if it's, if it's properly um, attributed religious, to be religious is to be faithfully devoted. And what we want to be is faithfully devoted to the right things, right? And not to things that are simply tradition or simply a trend. And what I loved about Holly, her name is Holly, what I loved about Holly's question was it represented humility on her part and a desire to do what was right rather than what she wanted to do or what she thought was right. She was open to trying to get input and suggestions so that she could be faithfully devoted in this time, in this place, all things considered, what, what would be the, the right thing to do? Man, those, those are important themes. And here's an important question for all of us. There's a place to write this in your notes as well. How often do you fact check your religious beliefs and practices? How often do you pause and fact check your religious beliefs and practices? The things that you believe that, that are true to your religion, how often do you stop and go, is this really... And essential Is this really something that, that is true to my religion or how much of this is really tradition that built up over time? How much of this is just a trend that, that we're in? When we launched Emmanuel 10 years ago, one of the things that we did is we made a conscious decision to observe a season called Lent. One of the things we used to say back in the day was that we didn't want Easter to be a pleasant interruption. We wanted to have this season going towards Easter where we did just this, where we examined our faith and we tried to get back to the basics and try to say, are we really practicing authentic Christianity as individuals, as a church? Are we devoted faithfully to God or are we devoted to other things? 
Well, in those 40 days leading up to Easter, we want to encourage people. We want to encourage you to, to engage in religious practices that are designed to help us align our lives with the, the, the things that we say we're about, the faith that we profess. Religious practices like prayer and fasting and practices like those special services, Ash Wednesday, Good Friday. Practices like giving special offerings to the poor and to the marginalized. Practices like diving deep into the scriptures, especially those scriptures that speak directly to the life and teachings of Jesus. And here's one of many reasons why these practices matter. There's a place to write this in your notes too. Misguided religion can subvert authentic faith. Can I get an amen to that? Misguided religion can subvert authentic faith in God. Well, this Lent, what we're working through is, is what we call, what the, um, most of it's referred to as the Gospel of John. It's one of the, the ancient documents that's inclo- included in our Bible. John was an eyewitness to things that Jesus said and he did. And very early on, very early on, as is, is John is laying these things out in his account of Jesus' life, he makes it clear that one of the things Jesus came to do was to shed light into darkness. That was one of the things that Jesus was about, to shine light into dark areas. And this is especially true, especially true when it comes to religious practices that were aligned with traditions and trends rather than truth. There's a place to write this in your notes. Religious darkness is one of the many things that the light of Jesus exposed. It was there all along. But it's one of the things that Jesus exposed when he brought his light. Now, how many of you know at the show of hands that exposing darkness can be dangerous business? All right, it is. If you shine light into dark areas, you're not sure what you're going to find. And if you're shining light into the dark areas of people's lives, get ready. Because you're, you're going to see people's true colors. That's what happens when you shine light into the dark areas. And Jesus warned his disciples about this. He warned his disciples. It says here in John 15, 18 through 19, these are the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And many of us have been on the receiving end of this, haven't we? Where you say something and you try to say it in love. You try to speak the truth in love and you're like, what just happened there? Why this attack? You know, well, in the time of Jesus, it was more than just you would get a mean tweet or you would get a, you know, one star instead of five or something, right? Back then, look at this, John 16, 1 through 2, again, quoting Jesus directly. I have said these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think they are offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus encountered fierce opposition. Fierce opposition. And the haters who were dialing up the most hate tended to be religious leaders. And what we're going to look at today is the example of a courageous man who was part of this religious establishment. And he decided, I'm not just going to go along with the party line. 
And we're going to see what happened where he started to seek truth instead of just going with traditions or the trends or with what other people were saying. So if you do have your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 3, starting with verse 1, because this is where we're going to spend most of our time together today, just right here in John chapter 3. And I want to let you know if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. You don't have to sign anything. Just take one of the copies that we keep there at the, um, at the entrance on your, or the exit, I guess it would become, on your way out. All right, here we go. Uh, John chapter 3, let's start with verse 1 and part of verse 2. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus when? By night. And said to him, all right, we're going to hit pause and dig in right there for a while. Jesus was a Pharisee, and Pharisees were influential leaders in the Jewish community. They were known to be experts in religious law, and they were known to be practitioners of holy living. And if you were a Jew in that time and in that place, and you found yourself on the end of a Pharisee's pointing finger, it is not an exaggeration to say it could cost you everything that mattered most to you. If you got on the wrong end of one of these influential people and their pointing finger, it could literally cost you everything that you valued most. It could kick you out of their version of the church. It could ban you from the temple. It could cast you from the community. And then we're going to see with Jesus, it could even get you killed. And Nicodemus, he's not just one of these Pharisees. He appears to be one who holds a position of special honor, which may explain why he came at night. One of the things that people suspect, and, and I can't argue with at all, is that he probably came at night so that the other Pharisees wouldn't see him. The Pharisees had positioned themselves as the gatekeepers of right religion, and Jesus threatened the status quo. So it very much could be that Nicodemus visited Jesus at night so that none of the other Pharisees would see him talking with Jesus. It could be that. And, and, a number of commentators as I was studying this week said John might have included this detail for another reason, too. John has already made the case that one of Jesus' primary purposes in coming was to bring light into the darkness. And we're going to see that when Nicodemus comes, he's still in the dark when it comes to understanding who God is and what faithful devotion to God looks like. All right, let's go back to verse 2. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So now we're beginning to see why Nicodemus is having a conversation with Jesus. God himself seemed to be with Jesus in a unique way. And Nicodemus was curious about this. This was not just another person claiming to be another Messiah. There was something different about Jesus and the things he said and the things that he did, especially these signs, and it made Nicodemus curious. Jesus had Nicodemus' attention, so Jesus leads with this. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I was on a run a couple of weeks ago. And I was thinking, okay, if, if I had to summarize Christianity with as few words as possible, how would I do it? You know, one of the thoughts that came to me um, was the thought of, well, it's about following Jesus. And that's true, but it leaves a lot out. And I, I thought about, well, it could be um, 
described as someone who puts their faith in Jesus. And that's true, but it's also so much more than that. And the more I was thinking on this run, and I had a whole lot of time, because it takes me a long time to get as far as I used to, you know, um, I, I can't think of a better metaphor when, if you had to concisely describe what it means to be a Christian than born again. I can't think of a better metaphor. And if you believe the devil is real, it shouldn't surprise you then that the phrase born again is among the most trivialized and, 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 I don't know, dismissed phrases that there are in the English right now. I came across this quote as I was prepping this week. It is a pity that born again has been debased in common speech as a scornful description of an extreme sect or even believing or referring to old ideas renewed. It would be very unfortunate to allow ridicule to deprive us of a concept so vital and so central to the Christian faith. Can I get an amen on that? Born again, it is a powerful metaphor. And it says so much with such an economy of words. Born again captures the reality that there's actual new life here. That there was, where there once wasn't this kind of life, it now exists. Born again also captures the reality that God is the source and the initiator of that life. We love because he first loved us. Born again. It also captures the reality that maturity doesn't happen in a moment. That there's this ongoing growth that is supposed to happen over time. And following Jesus involves daily decisions, plural. How many of you been watching a little of the Winter Olympics? All right, a lot of good Minnesotan context there, right? Wasn't it fun if you saw the curling, the men's curling, the finals, to hear all these guys talk in Minnesotan, you know, yeah, 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 it was just awesome. Well, one of our Minnesota connections is Lindsey Vaughn, and she grew up skiing on Buck Hill. And so if you saw some of that footage when she was little, was she the skier when she was little that she is now? No. There was a maturity, there's a discipline, there's a growth that happens over time. And there's something else that you see with her. She still falls. She's one of the best in the world, and the best in the world still fall, right? Falling isn't evidence of her not being a skier. It's evidence of her being human, as is the case with all of us. Being followers of Jesus, we also fall, right? There's so much in that whole idea, that language of being born again, which can, I think, can also be taken too far. I remember being in Detroit, in Detroit, and, and I was sitting in the congregation, and there's this pastor, and this pastor was very passionate when he was talking. And one of the things he did at one point, he gets up on the front pew, and he says, with just the, the veins popping out of his neck, he goes, if you can't point to a moment in time, a specific moment in time, when you gave your life to Christ, if you can't tell me when that precise moment was, I doubt if you're even a Christian. And I'm just thinking, you know, uh, okay, you've got a different audience than we have here. I don't usually get up on the pew, but that's, that's, that's beside the point. I question if you're fully telling people the full story about this. Because this guy we're looking at right now, Nicodemus, we're coming back to Nicodemus. This guy named Nicodemus, it seemed to me, it took time for him. And there was more of a process of him becoming a Christian. And I don't want to take anything away from that moment in time that so many of us have had where something really changed. But we want to be careful about 
expressing that the way it happened with us is the way that happens with everyone else. Um, there's a book that we highly recommend during this series that takes you deeper into the book of John. It's called John for Everyone by N.T. Wright. He says this about being born again. He says one thing that a birth certificate isn't needed for is to prove that a birth took place. Here I am. I'm a human being. Obviously, I must have been born. The fact that at the moment I can't officially prove when and where, it's a minor detail. You know, I think about this. I think about one of my sisters. I have a sister that was adopted from South Korea. Uh, her name's Miran. She's awesome. Someone dropped her off at an orphanage with a sign around her neck saying, take me in. We don't know the date of her birth. But we know she's real. <laughs> she texted me yesterday. Um, <laughs> she lives in Hastings. She likes kimchi. Uh, and one, is one of the most generous, caring people I know. We don't know the date of her birth, but we know she's real. And may I present to you that a God-honoring life is far greater evidence that someone was born again than a date in time that they can point backwards at. N.T. Reich goes on to say this. He said, it's a bit like someone framing their birth certificate, hanging it on the wall, and then insisting on showing it to everyone who comes into the house. What matters is that you are alive now and that your present life, day by day, moment by moment, is showing evidence of health and strength and purpose. And once again, to be clear, I don't want to diminish anyone's moments. I talk about my moments all the time. We do the best we can as a church to provide moments. And we want to point people to the life they have now. Are you living a God-honoring life? Um, there's a place in your notes to write this down. Instead of asking, are you born again, which is a fair question, the way we phrase that same question is slightly different here. Is God your father? Have you been born again into this relationship with God? where he is your father and you're setting out to honor that family name and, and that you understand his forgiveness and you understand his grace and his truth and all that comes with it. Now, in, at the close of today's service, we're going to give you an opportunity, a moment to surrender your life to God for the first time or the first time again. And some of you, you're not going to be able to do that yet because you're not there. And that's where Nicodemus was. He came to Jesus at night, and he had questions. He had questions. There was something within him that said, there's something to this, and I want to learn more. And maybe that describes some of you. Let's go back to our text, John chapter 3, starting with picking up with verse 4. Nicodemus said to Jesus, all right, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus still had questions. Maybe some of you are too. You look at that and go, what? What are you talking about? But Nicodemus, instead of pretending like he got it, or Nicodemus, just because he didn't get it, shutting it down, he continued to ask questions. He realized there's something here. I don't fully understand it, but I want to learn more. Picking up with verse 9, Nicodemus said to Jesus, how, do these, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, 
How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the words that come next after this have been translated and proclaimed more times than any other words in human history. You can try fact-checking me on that. I'm not able to prove, but it'd be pretty hard to prove some other words were translated or proclaimed more times in history than that. And before Jesus gets to those words, before he gets to those words, he provides a quote, or he says, Jesus says, so John provides a quote, in which Jesus describes an event that happened in the days of Moses. If you ever wondered why medical organizations have that symbol often of a pole with a bronze snake wrapped around it, it comes from here. You can read the actual account in Numbers 21, 4 through 9, the thing that Jesus is talking about with the, the Moses and the snake and all that. After God delivered the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites grumbled against God and against Moses. And as a consequence, God sent poisonous snakes into the camp. But God also provided a means by which they could be healed. And God instructed Moses to construct a pole with a bronze snake around it. And when people would look upon that bronze snake, they would be healed if they had been bit. Well, those are the words then that come immediately before these words. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, as I was preparing this week, I was, I was looking in one translation of the Bible, and it was what's called a red letter edition. And a red letter edition is an edition of the Bible, a translation where they put the words of Jesus in red. And so I'm reading through this, and in this translation, this red letter translation, the red letters stopped at John 3.15. And I'm like, what? I always thought this was a direct quote from Jesus. So my mind started to go all kinds of directions of things I could say to all of you to go, wow. You know, it, and then I'm like, you know, I should probably do that thing that I try to do each week and look at multiple sources. And I'm glad I did because otherwise it'd be violating one of the very things we're talking about today. And when I looked at other sources, I saw that different sources have different opinions about where the quotations should and shouldn't be. So that where you put the quotations doesn't change what John 3.16 says. But if you're not careful and you only look at one source, you could end up building all kinds of beliefs that are based more on opinions and preferences than on what the text actually says. It is so easy to think we know more than we do, isn't it? Especially if you read one source or two source or listen to one source or two source. Let's pick up with verse 17. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works would be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So John 3.16 continues directly into one of these teachings on light and on darkness. 
And as John's gospel unfolds, the darkness that was embraced by most of the Pharisees is revealed for what it is. So now let's jump ahead to chapter 7, verse 45. Chapter 7, verse 45. As Jesus continues to shine more and more light, the chief priests and the Pharisees become more and more committed to extinguishing it. And just prior to the section we're about to read, what they do is they dispatch some of their temple officers to go and arrest Jesus. And here's what happens. The police actually encounter Jesus. They pause to listen to what he has to say. Not just what they heard about him. They actually listen to what he says. And they come back without their prisoner. And so here's where we pick up. Verse 45. The officers that came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, or the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring in Jesus? And the officers answered, because no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law. They're accursed. And Nicodemus, see he's back. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of these Pharisees, said to them, Hey, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? When you shine light into dark areas, you see people's true colors, don't you? Instead of listening to their officers, as these officers come back and said, okay, what was it you heard that, 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 that caught your attention? What was it you heard that he said that has you changing your, your views? Instead of, instead of going there and trying to understand things, they try to pull the guards back into the echo chamber, right? Hey, all of us! All of us believe this. Except all of them didn't believe that. Nicodemus didn't. And Nicodemus has the courage to call them out. And he does his best to do so in a tactful way. And he does this because he's not only beginning to recognize that maybe there's truth to what Jesus is saying, he's also beginning to recognize all these people around me. We've got blind spots of our own here including this. And so Nicodemus asks a simple question. He says, hey, before we jump to judgment, shouldn't we at least apply the same standards to ourselves that we're holding others accountable to? That seems like a fair question, doesn't it? Well, the other Pharisees, they respond like so many people do in our culture today. I was reading this text, and I'm like, this is exactly what happens so often when you try to have discussions about faith. They often go into attack mode. And that's what they do. Verse 52, the Pharisees replied, What? Are you from Galilee too? Search, the, search and see. No prophet arises from Galilee. Again, I see this all the time. And maybe you do too. After attacking the person that disagrees with them, religious people often then quote sections of the Bible that they have highlighted but leave other pieces of the Bible out. If the Pharisees had fact-checked themselves, they'd find this in 2 Kings 14.25. They said, no prophet comes from Galilee. Well, Jonah, the what? Prophet, is from Gath-Hefer. And if they did their homework, they would see that that place isn't just in the region of Galilee, 
It's pretty close to Nazareth, where Jesus of Nazareth was from. The same Jesus of Nazareth, who they would have, if they'd listened, would have heard him comparing himself to Jonah, as if to say, here's some bread trail, bread, breadcrumbs, guys, follow this trail. Well, right before the Pharisees, who claimed to be experts in the law, revealed their blind spots, the crowd had done the same. With a show of hands, how many of you know entire crowds can be wrong? Entire crowds can be wrong. (laughs) There's some emotion behind that one. Yes. Entire crowds can be wrong, and we see it back then too. This crowd, right before this part that we just read, this crowd said, well, Jesus, this is really interesting and all, but he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah is from Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Entire crowds can be off, too. The truth was there. The truth was there, but they weren't seeking truth as much as they were seeking confirmation of what they already believed. And that is a trap that we can all fall into. Remember that bronze serpent that we talked about earlier? The one that Moses made? Well, many years after Moses... There was a king named Hezekiah, and he had to destroy that serpent. And you know why? Because people began to worship it. They began to worship it. And so he had to destroy something that Moses had made. That wouldn't be awkward with the trustees or anything like that. Wow. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how our faith in God can go off course so easily? It is so easy for that to happen. And it often begins when pride replaces humility and when shouting down replaces seeking truth. One of the verses that we used to um, teach our teens back when I was a youth director is Jeremiah 29, 13. We used to have to memorize it. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that's what we see with Nicodemus. That this search that he began that started coming at night with a lot of questions, which then moved towards, wait a minute, there is something to this, and we've got blind spots of our own. We're going to see now it came to the spot where he was able to, with conviction, say Jesus is who he claimed to be. And here's why I say that. Let's go towards almost the end of the Bible, or the end of John. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 40. This comes after Jesus had died, actually immediately after he had died. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Who else was there? Who else was there? Nicodemus. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Nicodemus had earlier come at night. When does he come now? In the day, boldly, because they had just crucified Jesus. And not only is he coming during the day physically, he is now coming with open eyes, eyes that see. And why do I say that? Because he brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. And a number of my sources said something to this, this um, effect. 75 pounds, that is a large amount, but not a co- uncommon for royal 
births or royal burials. Nicodemus gave Jesus a burial fit for a king because he now came to realize this is not just another person who says they're Messiah. This is not just another rabbi. This is not just another teacher. And I'm all in. I'm going all in with Jesus. As did another Pharisee, former Pharisee named Paul, who referred to all of his previous understandings as dumb for the sake of knowing Christ. For those of us who have been born again, here's our challenge today and going forward. There's a place to write this in your notes. If you've been born again, how can you help us? And when I say us, I don't just mean our church. I mean the kingdom of God, all Christians everywhere. How can you help us inspire curiosity and confidence in others? Well, at this time, I want to invite the worship band to come on up. And they're going to lead us in a prayer. It's a prayer that comes through, the, through a song called At the Cross. At the Cross. And we want to encourage you, if you have been born again, to once again come and say, God, at the cross, I surrender all. I surrender all of my beliefs. I surrender all of my, my practices. I surrender everything. You're the king. And maybe some of you, for the first time ever, might come to that place. Well, as you work your way through John, you're going to see some of what that means, especially in the later chapters as Jesus is getting ready to leave. He says, this looks like serving one another the way I served you. This looks like loving one another the way I loved you. This looks like remaining so close to me that you're as close as a branch is to a vine. If the world can truly see those things, we're not going to look like just another religion. We're going to look different. So let me pray as we enter into this time of prayer through song. Father, it is our prayer that we would become a people like that, a people like you who inspired curiosity because there was something different. Help us to become different in all the right ways. Help us to let go of every tradition, every trend that is not in alignment with who you are and who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.